Well, good morning, everyone. Why don't you go ahead and start making your way back towards your seats? I'm Dennis, um, one of the pastors here at Garden City. I have the privilege of pastoring alongside Pastor Shaq. So glad that each of you are here with us this morning. Um, We are continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we worked through Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And today, we are picking up exactly where we left off. And in many ways, we are going to be extending the conversation that we had last week. Last week, we talked about becoming people who know how to handle hard better by taking seriously what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And last week, we really defined what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus by outlining four particular things. One is to be with Jesus. Two is to learn Jesus' teaching. And three is to take on Jesus' ways and character. The fourth of those things was to live out Jesus' kingdom mission in the world. And really up until this point in Mark's gospel, we see the disciples, we see Jesus' closest followers doing really the first three of those things. We see them drawing near to Jesus and following him. They're learning his teaching and they're beginning to take on Jesus' character in ways. But they haven't yet really gone out or been sent out to really live out on their own Jesus' kingdom mission in the world. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning as we look at Mark chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. So, I'll read our passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll start into our conversation for today. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Let's pray together. Father, would these words that that we're about to engage and talk through, Father, would we do it in a way that is humble, a way that recognizes that our interpretations are not infallible, Father, we're doing our best to make sense of your words, and we're doing our best to apply them to our lives today. So, Father, would you open our hearts? Would you soften our hearts? Would you give us humility and curiosity that we might really take in your words, and through them, that we might be transformed individually and communally? So, Father, we love you. Amen. Mark begins this passage by telling us that Jesus went around 
teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. And he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Jesus, after the people in his hometown had rejected him and opposed his message, after they had tried to kill him, he continues on his mission, going from village to village. He continues his mission to the point that he now decides to enlist 12 of his disciples in the actual doing of his kingdom mission. Jesus calls, commissions, and empowers the disciples to extend and expand his ministry by teaching and healing people. And it's worth noting something. The disciples are by any modern standard of ministry preparedness not ready for the mission Jesus is sending them on. Yes, the disciples have spent time with Jesus, but it's still pretty early in Jesus' ministry. They've, up until this point, and even throughout the remainder of the gospel, they'll demonstrate themselves to be relatively slow learners. They haven't mastered imitating Jesus' character and ways. So what in the world is Jesus doing, sending them on this journey to teach and heal people? It seems that Jesus believes his disciples can live out his mission even before they fully understand it. Because Jesus knows the success of his mission isn't dependent on the disciples' expertise or qualifications. Jesus knows that the success of his mission is dependent on him. And so, despite not being ready, Jesus calls, commissions, and empowers his disciples to teach and heal people in villages that Jesus has already traveled through. In verse 8, Mark continues. He writes, These were Jesus' instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Now, there are two things in these verses that I think we need to pay particular attention to if we're to make sense of how Jesus sends his disciples out on this kingdom mission. First, Jesus instructs the disciples to go dependent on him and the hospitality of others. Jesus tells the disciples to take nothing for the journey except a staff, belt, sandals, and a shirt. It just so happens that these four belongings are the exact same four belongings God instructed the Israelites to take after they'd been set free by God from slavery and oppression in Egypt. After 400 years of slavery and oppression in Egypt, God tells them to take four things as he begins to move them out of Egypt and towards his promised land. And we're told in the book of Exodus that as the Israelites are leaving Egypt with only these four possessions, after having it shown to us that they're leaving Egypt in complete and total dependence on God, the author of Exodus tells a story that as they're leaving, they plunder the Egyptian people. It's recorded in Exodus 12. It reads, The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. 
the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. God leads his people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery and oppression. He sends them out dependent on him and with nothing. And then he abundantly provides for every one of their needs so that they can become a people who can live out his kingdom mission throughout the ancient world, where they can become a people who build a nation surrounded by godless nations, and they can orient themselves towards those other nations as a blessing. Here in Mark, Jesus instructs the disciples to posture themselves similarly, because in their dependence, God will meet their needs too. And one of the ways that Jesus will provide and and meet the needs of the disciples is through the people in the villages that Jesus is sending them to. Because in these villages, this region where Jesus is sending the disciples, it's a predominantly Jewish region. The people who live in these villages would have been people who, to some degree, were trying to live out and take seriously God's Old Testament commands and laws. One of those being how they would care for travelers, sojourners, or immigrants, wanderers who would come into their town. It's been established by historians like Josephus that each village the disciples traveled to would have had what amounts to a paid social worker, whose job was to identify travelers and ensure they had food, clothing, and lodging. The people who lived in these villages valued extending hospitality and generosity to wanderers, including immigrants. And because of that, Because of their desire to honor God and to obey the Old Testament law, they created a kind of social welfare system to ensure that vulnerable travelers had their needs met and were well cared for while they were staying in the village. And it's in this way that should the disciples' ministry be successful, there's no way that they can claim that their success originated with anything that they possessed. It didn't originate with anything that was theirs. Their success would have been completely dependent upon God. Second, Jesus instructs the disciples to practice nonviolence. Now, you might hear that and think, Dennis, where in the world does Jesus say anything about practicing nonviolence in the verses you just read? He tells them to take a staff. In Jesus' time, there were various kinds of weapons, some offensive and lethal, some defensive and non-lethal. Offensive weapons like a sword, dagger, a spear, a javelin, a bow, or a sling could have been possessed by people in their culture and used for self-defense or to intentionally harm someone or as a weapon of war. If we just think through the biblical stories that we know, we know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter carried a sword. So we know that the disciples did have access to these types of lethal weapons. We know that David in the Old Testament, he had a sling that he used to kill Goliath. We know that the people had access to lethal weapons. 
And Jesus could have told his disciples to take one of these offensive lethal weapons with them on their journey, but he doesn't. He tells them to take a staff, a defensive weapon that could be used to fend off, and I'll quote here from the really smart people who wrote the commentaries I used this week, to fend off a bandit or animal. It's not a lethal weapon. Jesus seems to want his disciples to be able to defend themselves, but in non-lethal ways. I mean, that story I just mentioned about Peter and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Peter takes out his sword, a lethal weapon, strikes the servant of the high priest, and cuts off his ear, we're told that Jesus turns to Peter and sternly rebukes him and tells Peter to put away his sword. Soldiers representing a tyrannical government in partnership with religious nationalists come to arrest Jesus in a garden in the hopes of killing him, and Jesus looks at Peter and says that Peter needs to put away his sword. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, after rebuking Peter, says this to him, For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. There's evidence that the way of Jesus, as modeled by the disciples in our story and in the early church, is a way of nonviolence. Jesus seems to want his disciples to be able to defend themselves, but not in a way where another person could be killed. If we continue in our passage, in verse 11, Jesus says this to the disciples. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is sending his disciples out to live his kingdom mission for the world by teaching people the good news of the gospel and healing people. And they're doing this in villages where the people largely have not placed their faith in Jesus as their Savior. Their lives are not oriented towards the kingdom that God, Jesus has come to inaugurate. And because of that, their lives aren't reflective of the type of morality that Jesus demands of his followers. Jesus is preparing the disciples as they go into villages like this by warning them that some of the places they'll go, the gospel message will be rejected and they will be opposed, sometimes even violently, like Jesus was in his hometown. And when this happens, Jesus tells them to leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Eugene Peterson translates Jesus' words in the message this way. If you are not welcomed, not listened to, quietly withdraw. Do not make a scene. Shrug your shoulders and be on your way. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him through Samaria. It's another missionary journey that Jesus is sending his disciples on. And in this instance, Samaria, the region where Jesus is sending them on this mission, it's not a place where the villages would be predominantly Jewish. They would have been predominantly Samaritan. That means they would have been a different 
ethnic and, and racial makeup than the villages the disciples would have visited in the first missionary journey that we are looking at in Mark 6. And because of that, these, these people would have been religious outsiders. They would not have adhered to the kingdom of God. They would not be living their lives in a moral way according to either like Jewish law, let alone Jesus' kingdom. There's established history that outlines how Samaritans and Jewish people, because of their animosity for each other, because of their differences, because Jewish people were really convinced that the Samaritans were a godless and immoral people, would kill one another and would burn each other's villages. And at least according to the Jewish people, the Samaritans, they were the equivalent of what Christians today might say are a secularized, godless culture that worships false gods and lives their lives in impure and immoral ways. And Luke tells us in chapter 9 that the Samaritan people did not welcome the disciples or Jesus as they passed through on this missionary journey. And then Luke records this. When the disciples James and John saw this, when they saw that they were being rejected and opposed by the Samaritans, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. James and John, despite knowing Jesus' instruction to just shake the dust off of their feet and move on, ask Jesus if they can call down fire from heaven and destroy the Samaritan village and the people who live in it because they don't want to live their lives according to the gospel or the ways that the disciples are suggesting they should in light of the kingdom. And we're told that Jesus rebukes James and John. And just to be clear as to how sternly Jesus rebukes them, because we could think that, well, Jesus is just looking at them and saying, hey, guys, stop it. Or, hey, like, just we'll talk about that later, but enough for now. The language that Jesus is using is language that was reserved for exercising demonic forces. When the gospel is rejected, and the disciples are opposed. Jesus instructs them to acknowledge and respect a person's choice to distrust the gospel and live their lives according to whatever moral code they choose, knowing that the ultimate judgment of every person belongs to Jesus, not them. Jesus then is teaching his disciples and us that his mission is not accomplished through the use of cultural, political, economic, or religious power, force, or violence. The disciples are not to coerce or compel people to believe in Jesus or embrace his morals. They're not to demonize the people who oppose them, nor are they to seek the destruction or harm of people who reject Jesus' message. Now, what does all of this mean for us today? What might Jesus be saying to us through this passage? 
I think there are four things we should consider together. One, even if we don't feel ready, we live as commissioned and empowered disciples seeking to expand and extend Jesus' kingdom mission. Two, we live dependent on Jesus and one another. Three, we practice nonviolence and peacemaking. And four, we refuse to hate people, no matter how intensely they oppose God's way of living. So if these are four things that we should consider as to what it means for us today in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families, in our relationships to be living out Jesus' mission for the world. Well, what does it mean that we are to live as commissioned and empowered disciples seeking to expand and extend Jesus' kingdom mission? Church, there isn't a place that we'll go, at least here in Pittsburgh, that Jesus hasn't already been. Even when we were starting Garden City, Pastor Shaq said to me over and over, we need to remember that we're not bringing Jesus to the neighborhood. He's been here for a lot longer than we have. A lot of other people have been here doing the work before we got here. Our role then is to recognize that even if we don't always feel like it's true, we've been commissioned and empowered by Jesus as his disciples, as his ambassadors, to expand and extend his kingdom mission by teaching the gospel and working to set people free and make them whole. We go into the places that Jesus has already gone. We continue the ministry that Jesus has already started. And through all of it, the Spirit expands and extends the kingdom of God in new ways that we couldn't have imagined or predicted. To be disciples of Jesus and live out his kingdom mission in the world, we must always remember that we've been empowered and commissioned by Jesus himself to go where he's already gone, to push forward the work he's already initiated and see people who otherwise would not have place their faith in Jesus and experience transformation. Second, we live dependent on Jesus and one another. Even though we know we're supposed to live our lives dependent on Jesus and interdependent as a faith community, We still push against it, don't we? It grates on us, and so we push back on it. But what would it look like for us to not only recognize that we need less than we think we do, but what if we actually started limiting what we possessed? What might it look like if we embraced a kind of generosity that places other people's financial and material needs above and before our own? How might we practice a kind of hospitality, individually and communally, that's modeled after the kind that existed in ancient Jewish villages, where a kind of social system was created to meet the material and physical needs of vulnerable people? The disciples lived Jesus' kingdom mission barely having anything. They just had Jesus and his power and his authority. 
Do we live like we know that's all we need? And that we already have it in measures we can't fathom? So first, we live as commissioned and empowered disciples seeking to expand and extend Jesus' kingdom mission. And two, we live dependent on Jesus and one another. The third thing is that we practice nonviolence and peacemaking. 40% of white evangelical Christians believe the Constitution is divinely inspired. And because of that, they also believe their Second Amendment right to bear arms is divinely inspired. It's how evangelical white evangelical Christians can claim they have a God-given right to own a gun. But Jesus doesn't confer that right to any of his followers. Neither do any New Testament authors. John the Baptist seems to teach that soldiers in the military should possess lethal weapons. But even the early church embraced a radical form of nonviolence. Tertullian, an early church leader, said this, Only without the sword can the Christian wage war. The Lord has abolished the sword. Justin Martyr, another early church leader, said this, We ourselves were well conversant with war, murder, and everything evil. But all of us throughout the whole wide world, all of us followers of Jesus throughout the whole wide earth have traded in our weapons of war. We have exchanged our swords for plowshares, our spears for farm tools. It's a direct reference to Isaiah's prophecy of the future and coming kingdom. Justin Martyr is saying that as Christians, we should be laying down our firearms in this world as a way of embodying the future hope of God's coming kingdom to our neighbors and communities. Church, I think we are a people who are well acquainted with what it means to live in a culture that is conversant with war, murder, and everything evil. The early church lived in ancient Rome, arguably a more secular, a more godless, immoral culture and empire than what we live in. And Jesus and the early church do not respond to it by saying that they need lethal weapons in order to defend their own lives. It seems that to be a disciple of Jesus means to refuse to possess lethal weapons for the sake of self-defense. By taking on nonviolence and peacemaking as part of our identity as disciples of Jesus, we posture ourselves as a prophetic witness to the world, and perhaps even more importantly, to people who claim to follow Jesus. Church, just a little bit more here, like statistic-wise, White evangelical Christians, more than any other group of people, more than any other demographic in America, own more guns. People who follow Jesus, who are instructed by Jesus, that we are to be willing to die for our neighbors, who instruct us that we don't live for this world anyways, who demonstrate for us these ways and practices of nonviolence. 
For some reason, white evangelical Christians, more than any other demographic in America, believe they need to own and possess guns. I recognize that I'm pushing here. I recognize that I I might be pushing up against something that's making some of us feel uncomfortable. That that might even be making us angry. I think we need to make space for that. And I think we also need to recognize that maybe what we have been taught, maybe it doesn't have its roots in Jesus. I do think there's, there are others of us in the room who I think like we agree with this ethically. We are people who believe that there should be regulations on the types of guns people can own. We, we might have an ethic or, or a thought that maybe as Christians we shouldn't possess lethal weapons, but maybe we just haven't had a biblical framework for that yet. And so maybe you're wrestling with it because this feels like something that you've thought and felt for a while, but you haven't really known how to articulate it from a biblical, Christian, gospel-centered position. So the fourth thing, the last thing, we refuse to hate people no matter how intensely they oppose God's ways of living. I recently made a post to social media critical about the way that a cultural commentator who has close to a million followers on social media would casually call their political opponents enemies. And one person commented on that post by writing this. If my countrymen seek to put their wickedness on a pedestal in our society and call it good, they have made themselves my enemies. We are talking about divides between us that are irreconcilable. There is no room for compromise on these issues. Either they win or we do. This person's on staff at a church. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't have strong convictions. We should. Jesus did. What I'm saying is that Jesus held strong convictions, interacted with people who vehemently disagreed with him, and at points attempted to kill him, and he still refused to consider them enemies. I mean, in the moment where Jesus is actually being killed by the people who opposed him, He asks God to forgive the people who are murdering him, saying this in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They don't know any better. They're living their lives the way that makes sense to them. So Father, even though they're killing me, forgive them. We hold our strong convictions rooted in the gospel and the person of Jesus. We believe there is a way of living that aligns with the kingdom of God, and yet we refuse to demonize the people who disagree with Jesus, and we refuse to hate the people who oppose our Savior. That story we discussed in Luke about James and John wanting to call down fire on the people who oppose Jesus, the people who were arguably the enemies of the Jewish people. I love this. 
Later in Luke's gospel and then in Acts, which Luke also wrote, some of the Samaritan people in the region where James and John had wanted to call down fire from heaven, some of them start turning their hearts to Jesus. They begin believing in Jesus as their Savior. They begin to experience transformation. They begin to live like Jesus. That doesn't happen if the disciples were allowed to destroy their so-called enemies. We must be people who refuse to hate. So, four ways or practices that we can live out Jesus' kingdom mission in our communities and in our places of work and in our families and relationships. We live as commissioned and empowered disciples seeking to expand and extend Jesus' kingdom mission. We live dependent on Jesus and one another. We practice nonviolence and peacemaking. And lastly, we refuse to hate people no matter how intensely they oppose Jesus and his ways of living. We must be people who understand and take seriously the fact that we are Jesus' disciples. We're his ambassadors everywhere we go for the sake of our neighbors and the world. Let's pray together. Father, give us soft hearts, humble spirits, to wrestle with your words, to process this conversation, to make sense of what you're really saying, to work through things with you and in community. We want to become like you. And Father, I know that my interpretations of Scripture are fallible. So Father, whatever was not to be received, pray that you would be at work. But Father, even if some of this was challenging, and it is your word, it is your way, it aligns with your kingdom, teach it to us, no matter how hard. We need to be people who, like we talked about last week, learn how to handle hard better, how to be a prophetic witness in our communities today. Father, even just yesterday in Brighton Heights, another person was shot. <laughs> we need to be prophetic witnesses Teach us what that means. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.